Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 1st, 2022. Sometimes when you look at the headlines, actually, this morning, it seems like July the 1st. 1022 or something there's something medieval something bizarre about some of these headlines supreme court seems every day to go back a century or two in terms of its attitude to sex and guns and everything else um president trump continues or ex-president trump continues to astonish us it's as if the script writers are coming up with more and more absurd things every day. It's hard to imagine what else will come out, although every day we seem to be amazed. Today it's about how close he came to joining the rioters uh, on January 6th. Some parts of the country have sort of entered into the medieval age more enthusiastically than others, Texas in particular. Um, I just wrote something about the apocalypse now, uh, uh, almost now anyway, on crypto scams, end times and far right nostalgia. Uh, the far right nostalgia is particularly ominous and chilling. I uh, did an interview with Jennifer Senor, the Atlantic writer, on Steve Bannon as the American Rasputin. We're edging closer and closer to Margaret Atwood's world. She was on our show uh last year of course her handmaid's tales becoming increasingly realistic some people put it as dystopian or science fictional it's probably increasingly a form of realism so how are we going to make sense of this we could of course get lots of liberals on the show and articulate their outrage at the latest news about the supreme court or donald trump or something else but i'm wondering whether we need someone a little bit more outrageous. Elizabeth Sandifer is certainly outrageous, I think, in an intellectual way. Um, I was just looking at her Twitter handle. She recognizes, I think, and her, her way of looking at the world is becoming increasingly relevant. Some people might consider it slightly odd. I think she's actually increasingly moving into the mainstream. She indeed is the mainstream. She has a book. It's not that well known. Near Reaction, a basilisk. Essays on and around the alt-right. But I think Elizabeth is getting this stuff right. Uh, she had an interesting piece also, The Strange and Terrifying Ideas of Near Reactionaries. Uh, Elizabeth, is that quite an introduction? Did I do yeah, it? I, I feel like that captures uh, the experience of trying to be weird and on the margins and just sort of getting... You can't, yeah, Elizabeth. You are mean. central. You can't be on the margins anymore. Weirdness is weirdness is not weird anymore. It's, it's, it's the nature of things. If you're not weird, then you're not normal, right? Yeah. I mean, it, we live in deeply weird times. So explain it. Uh, as I said, we've done lots of shows about... Teal and Trump and Bannon uh, and coming across your work seemed to help me make sense of this in a in a science fictional way. It seems as if you're a, an alternative publisher and writer and broadcaster and personality, but you're making sense of it as much as anyone. So, so what exactly is going on here, Elizabeth? I, I think the heart and soul of it is 
there's a temptation to assume that just because someone is very, very stupid, they're probably somewhat harmless. And it turns out to be the case that the exact opposite is true, that stupidity is absolutely no barrier to amassing tremendous amounts of power, and that it is, in fact, wildly dangerous, far more dangerous than competence, because it doesn't actually stop you from accomplishing anything. It just ensures that everything you accomplish is going to be as absolutely horrible as humanly possible. And I think that really explains, you know, Peter Thiel, uh, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, really anyone from this uh, creeping fascism that you want to identify. I mean, Elizabeth, I got to push back on one thing. I mean, I, I'm no bigger fan than you are of Peter Thiel, uh, but I, I, I think it might be slightly unfair, perhaps on intelligence, to call Peter Thiel stupid. He's many things, but he isn't stupid. We did a show, by the way, with Max Chafkin, who who wrote The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. He, he seems to understand the Machiavellian or the, or the Leninist nature of Thiel. He makes sense. I mean, he's not an idiot, right? I mean, we're talking about someone who threw a lot of money at what was basically a uh, patient-funded medical trial to uh, infuse the blood of younger people into you to achieve... <laughs> some sort of immortality. I'm not convinced that he's not an idiot. I, I, I think he's very, very good at amassing power. Um, he's very, very good at making money. These are both demonstrable accomplishments that he has. But if you look at his ideas, and, and actually one chapter in the reaction of Basilisk is very much about looking at Peter Thiel's ideas and philosophy and the things he's backed, I don't see it. I, I really don't see much of a case for uh, intelligence. This is actually kind of the essay I end on. And the point that I end on is that, you know, even Peter Thiel, this kind of, uh, you know, dark Machiavellian figure allegedly funding everything and uh, at the heart of everything is actually just a complete wingnut lunatic full of absolutely easily dismissible beliefs. And that's just, it provides no defense. The fact that he's stupid is utterly useless uh, to anyone trying to fight yeah, against I mean, um, Yeah, I mean, you may have a point, and I, I don't think we, we need to waste time arguing about Peter Thiel's intelligence. Um, what you have in common with Thiel, though, is a fascination with science fiction. Yeah, um, no, that, that, that uh, is I, you know, And in the little bit of work and writing I've done on Thiel, he's obsessed with Tolkien. He's obsessed um, with imagining the world in, in science fiction fictional terms explain that elizabeth and and do you feel that in in a sense in perhaps in a limited way you have a a a similar view of things at least a a similar beginning point i mean it's certainly the case you know new reaction to basilisk was a very obsessive book for me um I, I described it as something I wrote by accident. It was very much, you know, late nights uh, alone writing a book that through most of it, I wasn't at all clear that this book had any audience whatsoever. Um, I get the kind of weird, deliberately contrarian outsider perspective. I'm enormously sympathetic to that, that instinct. Um, and so, you know, like Thiel, yeah, I do have a huge interest in science fiction and fantasy and imaginative genres. I'm kind of in my own writing making a pivot toward working in those right now. 
Um, I think you're right to note, you know, that Thiel's interested in Tolkien, and I'm probably a little more interested in things that were written in the last 60 or 70 years as opposed to Tolkien. Um, I think that, you know, even in his taste in science fiction and fantasy, there's a kind of banal reactionary streak to Thiel. Um, but I do share that interest in um, imaginative perspectives. I even, you know, one of Thiel's big ideas is that he really likes the kind of moonshot bet. His entire investing strategy is he'll throw money at things even if even if they look very improbable because you only have to pay off once on a moonshot. Um, and I, I share that. I mean, I have a real interest in cranks and weirdos and outsiders and what weirdos might have to say and tell us about the world. Um, so I do share that with Thiel, except that I don't actually think Is Thiel likes Thiel or Thiel? I call him Thiel. You call him Thiel. I've never actually heard it pronounced by someone authoritative. You might be right, and I might have been making Maybe there are two of them, Elizabeth. There's a Thiel and a Thiel. Maybe that Maybe explains Maybe there are. It. Maybe there are. Um, I, I honestly, you know, I, I've only seen it printed. Uh, I could be pronouncing it completely wrong. I'll go to Thiel, just so that we are all on the same page for this podcast. Uh, but yeah, no, I, th I think he, I, I do share his fascination with kind of the esoteric. I don't think he goes very esoteric. I think he's frankly a little more interested in the branding of being esoteric and weird, whereas I'm someone who's inclined to like look at William Blake and go, no, 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 what if, let's take his, you know, weird visionary mythology that no one takes seriously, entirely yeah. serious. We, we did actually a, a wonderful show on Blake. Um, oh, I'm going to have to dig that out there. Uh, with with a biographer I mean, of Blake. I think one of the other things you're doing is making sense of the alt-right in a, shall we say, a post-empirical, a post, a post, post scientific sense. Uh, your, your piece on the strange and terrifying ideas of neo-reactionaries touches on a man called Yarvin, who was on mm. the, uh, the Tucker Carlson show. He seems... Carlson seems that someone sent down from another planet, but that's another issue. Who is this Curtis Yarvin? Um, Teal's been betting on him as well. Uh, yeah, Yarvin's um, a weird tech guy. He he started in tech and then he became a uh, blogger under the pen name Mencius Moldbug, uh, where he advocated for um, a philosophy called Neoreaction. Um, that's where the book got its title. Uh, which basically his contention, which was slightly satirical, but only slightly, um, was that the best thing to do would be to have Steve Jobs, uh, who was still alive at the time, take over California as a kind of CEO monarch, um, accountable only for the purpose of making California profitable, and uh, to reimpose slavery uh, in order to accomplish this. Uh, he fashioned himself as a old-school Jacobite who wanted to roll back the uh, glorious revolution in the UK and reestablish uh, classical monarchy, believing that every political turn since uh, the overthrowing of Charles I was frankly just a, a complete disaster and a mistake. And Tucker Carlson is obviously I I intrigued with this. I saw you, you retweeted uh, an interesting piece from the Brennan Center. We actually had someone from the Brennan Center on, on the crisis of democracy a couple of months ago, about essentially the end of democracy. It seems to me that guys like Thiel, certainly Bannon, 
and uh, and and your friend Marvin, or maybe he's not your friend. I mean, most <laughs> people are they're not even pretending anymore. anymore. They, they don't like democracy and they want to put an end to it. It's not just Donald Trump uh, no. going down no. uh, to, to the mall on uh, on on January sixth. This is a mainstream movement about essentially putting an end to democracy in America, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Peter Thiel has said that he uh, ultimately believes that democracy and liberty are incompatible, uh, by which he really means, you know, liberty for the extremely rich. At the end of the day, what you have here is um, not entirely unrealistic. In fact, I would go ahead and call it entirely realistic bet that the kind of liberal consensus of the world that's been driving it since World War II or so and, and its resolution is facing a inevitable end, which I think, you know, you look at climate change and that's probably true. You look at our complete failure to arrest climate change and you kind of have to go, all right, I'm not terribly confident in the ongoing uh, status of kind of globalized liberalism. Their contention, their plan is to, that what should arise out of the ashes of this is them in control. They want a uh, functionally oligarchy in which the current tech billionaires mostly consolidate power and run the world out of their out of their bunkers. Uh, that's more or yeah, less. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, Bannon even calls his podcast, which um, which Jensen Muir made it clear he really cares about it being the most listened to podcast. He even calls it the War Room. I mean, that's literal. There's nothing metaphorical about that. No, no. I mean, th this is active planning for the idea that not just American democracy, but global democracy is go is on the way out and that what is going to come in its wake are functionally a series of uh, warlords. Arising All right, we're going back, if not to the Middle Ages, certainly a representation of the Middle Ages in science fiction. Right, I saw, the Middle Ages uh, as understood through Tolkien, frankly. Like, right. the Middle Ages as understood by people who have only read the trashiest fantasy novels imaginable. Like Peter Thiel. Yes, exactly. Or whatever. Um, whatever his name is. Uh, he's not worth I mean, we're it. laughing, but it, it's not really very funny, is it? No, it's really? fucking terrifying. These people want to put me in a camp and kill me. I'm really fucking unhappy about this. Um, Like, these people are murderous, genocidal, would-be tyrants, and they have an active plan for assuming power that you look at the world and it's working. Um, and it's not just... A few loony Kurt Yarvin's or Peter Thiel's or Steve no, Bannon's. No, I mean, I, mean I, saw a, I saw a number this morning that 25% of Americans believe that they may need to take up arms against their government. So this is a main, this is increasingly a mainstream movement, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's, it's demonstrably gaining power. You look at, I mean, the uh, retweet you saw you were showing me from the Brennan Center, um, that's about a pending Supreme Court case next year that will outright dismantle American democracy, that will enshrine as an absolute right the independent state legislature theory, which was at the core of how Donald Trump wanted to overturn the election. He wanted to have the legislatures in Pennsylvania and Arizona and these states he thought he should win and didn't uh, just overturn the results and say, no, Trump won the state, ignore the numbers. And uh, asserted that this was absolutely legally permissible. And the Supreme Court has at least four votes in favor of that, it looks like. 
looks like. Uh, Amy Comey Barrett is literally the swing vote on whether elections matter anymore. Or and, whether, and when you get to a situation where Amy Conan Barrett is a swing vote, we, we have some problems, don't we? We get to uh, a situation Liz- where there's a single swing vote on the continuance of American democracy. I don't care who it is. Anyone as a swing vote on that is terrifying. Um, so yeah, I mean, these people are taking power. I, I think, I mean, for well, myself, I, I mean, uh, I, I don't want to defend them in any way. But having said that, American democracy is not currently working. No, so it's when not. they talk I mean, about dismantling it, I mean, the only people who seem upset are the the liberal intelligentsia on the coasts and the 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 the. the, the uh, the bureaucracy Absolutely. in D.C., everybody, nobody else really cares. It doesn't have any impact on ordinary people's lives anyway. No, I mean, one of the uh, sort of sub-schools of thought within uh, all of these movements is something called accelerationism, which suggests that you don't need to do anything other than speed up the processes that are already in, uh, already in play. That the, you know, striation of wealth that is making the rich and powerful even richer and even more powerful, that climate change that is dramatically... Uh, constricting our resources and the portion of the planet that is survivable. If you just speed all of these things up and make them happen more and faster, you'll just get to the desired end. End. Um, this is, you know, accelerationism uh, is a huge part of a lot of these philosophies. It's a lot of, you know, it's not even, one thing that's important to realize is that what we're seeing is an alliance between a kind of Christian fascism, Christian dominionist, uh, people whose angle on this is most focused on uh, eliminating queer people, restricting women's rights, the Margaret Atwood Handmaid's Tale angle. And then on the other hand, you have uh, people who are more like Peter Thiel, who want uh, material power in the aftermath of collapse. And each group thinks that the other group is their useful idiot. Right, and I, I think, think that, that, right that. I mean, yeah, the way you you described Teal, I think, is absolutely right. He's a chess player. He's obsessed with chess, and that's the end game for him—to destroy yeah. everything so that he's the last man standing. It's it's a chess game in which he wins the board, right? Yeah, and the thing I always think about in the end game of this, um, I saw a couple of years ago an article by Douglas Rushkoff. Who describes an old how, friend who actually is going to be on the show next month. He has a new book out on all this. Oh, wonderful. So he, he wrote this article where he described how a couple of like absolute high-end tech billionaires uh, spent outrageous amounts of money to fly him out to talk to them for a few hours. Yeah. And he talked with them and the thing it quickly became clear that they were most interested in. They were taking kind of the end of the world for granted. Uh, that, you know, some sort of event would happen that would collapse society as we know it. They had their plans to hole up in their, you know, tech bro bunkers and ride it out with their stored food and become the kind of warlords of of the future. And the only thing they couldn't figure out and that they were really looking for Rushkov's help on was how do they keep their security people from killing them and taking them? Uh, And Rushkov was like, "Um, have you tried paying them nicely and not making them want to do that. And obviously they dismissed that out of hand. And Rushkoff being an actually intelligent person was like, I I can't help you. What's going to happen there is your security people are going to kill you and take over. Um, And that's that, that, uh, you know, essay by Rushkoff just has lived rent free in my head for 
five years now. It, it's, to my mind, the most prescient thing about where the actual endgame, all, all of this goes. Uh, the problem is, you know, between here and that endgame is literally millions, if not billions of people dying. Um, and I don't love that middle step. I, I, I do find it's science the, fiction, but as, as I said at the beginning, it's science fiction for the real world. I wonder, um, Elizabeth, we can apportion blame in all sorts of areas here. Whether, shall we say, conservative or maybe even neoliberal science fiction writers have a degree of responsibility. We had Neil Stevenson on the show recently, very prominent science fiction writer, new book, no, Termination I Shock. And I was shocked myself with his faith in the market to fix all this. Uh, you had a, an interesting piece recently in, 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 uh, on your website about liberal science fiction at the fall of democracy. I, I guess uh, Stevenson would fall into that category of liberal science fiction writers. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, does science fiction have a responsibility here collectively for this fu massive fuck up? I mean, I think science fiction is mostly, I don't want to make the argument that science fiction is doing some sort of predicting the future and having it come real. Uh, for the most part, I think uh, the big error of science fiction in predicting the future, uh, cyberpunk assumes that uh, it would be much more interesting than it was. The uh, cyberpunk dystopia that we're actually living in is wildly more boring than like William Gibson and Neil Stevenson made it sound. Um, you know, they were right about the kind of dystopian forces at play. They just mistakenly thought it would be cool. And no, it, it's just horrible. Um, so no, I don't, I don't want to blame science fiction uh, for this. I do think that we've just, we've been living through a period of kind of extreme technological um, change, particularly the last 20 or 30 years with the rise of uh, did, of the internet and communications technology and computers and kind of their aftermath uh, has been a period of tremendous technological change and not one that was widely predicted by science fiction. You know, if, if you look at science fiction criticism, there's a whole lot of stuff about how science fiction kind of bet on the space race and it turned out the computer was the real winner. Although, to be fair, there are some people. I mean, my old friend Bruce Sterling, who's been on the right. show a I mean, couple there, of times, I mean, Bruce got it, right? Right. The, the minority of you got it. Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk was kind of the movement that turned out to be right about what was going to matter. Um, but notably, they got there in the 80s when it was already becoming a lot more clear. There weren't, yeah, you know, Bruce Sterling was an 80s writer. I'm thinking more in the 1960s right. with like Asimov and Heinlein uh, in there uh, as the kind of uh, receding wave, like Harlan Ellison and Ursula K. Le Guin coming into prominence. That whole era of science fiction didn't see the computer coming to nearly the extent that Sterling and Gibson and Stevenson did. Um, but I think that, you know, when you're living through a period where history is moving very, very fast, science fiction just becomes a very appealing lens for thinking about that. Science fiction is, as an artistic pursuit, kind of just well-geared to thinking about the issues of the day when the issues of the day are holy shit, history is moving fast. But history moves, history is a funny thing, Elizabeth. It both, it seems over the last 50 years, it's both simultaneously moved incredibly fast and hasn't moved at all. We, I don't know if you're familiar with a really good essay by Kurt Anderson. Uh, he's been on my show a couple of times. He wrote a, an essay, I think it was back in 2011 or 2012, suggesting on the one hand, nothing's changed. Music, fashion, 
right. We're stuck in these kind of generational distinction. The kids, my kids, and my friends' kids, they all dress the same as their parents. They listen to the same music, and yet it's technology that's changed everything. So something weird is going on, isn't it? I agree. Yeah. I mean, there's one sense in which things are moving very fast. There's another sense in which there's a kind of desperate need for some sort of new idea, some sort of way out of what's feeling like. An right. And that new way. idea, I said, I, I just wrote a, a, a piece uh, this morning on Lit Hub about uh, end times and right wing nostalgia. The, the really chilling thing is we've got innovators, and I use that word carefully on the right, like Teal, like Bannon, like Kurt Yarvin. But we don't have any equivalents on the left amongst progressives, unless we perhaps count you. I mean, I'd certainly love to be counted that way. I don't know. I don't... Notably, I don't think Bannon or Teal or anyone are that innovative. They're really going for. Kind well, I mean, it of, doesn't matter whether we use the I word or not. It's not important. You've acknowledged that maybe they're stupid, maybe they're not, but they're certainly right, powerful right. and relevant. Well, my point here is actually that you know you talked about the way in which uh, it feels like culture isn't necessarily advancing, and we're stuck in this kind of you know the twenty-year nostalgia cycle. But it strikes me that um, artistic evolution and cultural evolution tend to be iterative. There is something to be said for going back to an old uh, idea, an out-of-fashion idea, and kind of pulling it back, dusting it off, and seeing what you might have missed in it the first time. I think that is actually kind of one of the engines of progress, is dusting off the past and finding new ways forward from it. Um, well, tell me what, what that would involve for you. I mean, in, uh, in your reaction of Basilisk, I make the not entirely cheeky suggestion of... Uh, going back to William Blake. Um, and that is kind of my personal uh, pet suggestion. I don't want to necessarily say that everyone should become uh, a weird Blake-worshipping pagan who uh, believes unironically in William Blake's gods. Um, that's what I do. And it's, you know, it, and that's me being deliberately uh, ostentatious and weird. Um, but I think that there is a lot to be said for just on every level finding something weird and discarded that people aren't talking about, that people aren't thinking about. You know, when we think about the past, it's important to remember that we are always thinking about a heavily filtered version of the past. Um, We're thinking about a very concentrated and summarized version of the past. And there is so much there that we lose. You know, one one of the things that is most aggravatingly frustrating about the fascist rhetoric about queer people in particular, because obviously that's one that's very dear to my heart, um, is there's this idea that, you know, trans people came along in the last 20 years or so. And they didn't. Trans people have been around through all of history. You look at any society and you will find gender variant people to the extent that, you know, technology in any given society allowed people to effectively engage in a gender transition, they would do it. You know, you have ancient people drinking horse urine for this purpose. Um, It's always been there. There's always been these radical currents in history. And if you go and look at history and ask who was on the margins of it, who was, who were the weirdos in history that are only half remembered now and dig up what they're doing, you will find an infinite arsenal of possibilities uh, and ways forward. 
And what I don't I know if we want infinite arsenals on this show, Elizabeth. Um, what do you make of conser- uh, conservatives like within the gay community, like Andrew Sullivan, who seem to have declared war on the trans community? Is this a very unproductive civil war? The queer people who have allied themselves with the right are going to die in the camps with the rest of us, to be completely grim and blunt about it. They are useful idiots who are going to be turned on and killed along with everyone else. So they, they were like the Jews who work with the Nazis in the ghettos. Absolutely. They're going to die the same as the rest of us. Um, we, yeah, that's rather chilling. I hope uh, Andrew Sullivan hears that. Um, Elizabeth, you, you've mentioned William Blake a couple of times. As I suggested, we did a show on Blake with John Higgs, written a wonderful Oh, I love John Higgs. He, yeah, uh, John so Higgs he wrote a book. His new book is called William Blake versus the World. It's actually his second book on Blake. Great. And we uh, entitled the show, my conversation with Higgs, what William Blake might tell us about our transhuman future, which very much fits with what you're saying. Do you think that progressives, the left, need to more explicitly embrace the idea of transhumanism and of AI? We had Jeanette Winterton on the show last year, an old friend of mine. I'm sure you're familiar with her work. She's much more optimistic about AI and and tech. Do you think the tech lash has gone too far and that transhumanism might be one one way out of this disaster that seems to be almost inevitable now? AI is tricky for me. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, I have a lot of questions about it. I think that I'm unpersuaded by a lot of thought about AI. I think that most thought about AI tends to not really have a great understanding of the situation on the ground in the tech industry. It tends to be much more thought about science fiction about AI rather than the uh, technological phenomenon. I think that transhumanism is a really useful lens for thinking about things because one thing that AI lets you think about, one thing that AI is becoming an increasingly good metaphor for is the kind of radical other, the idea that we have created this new species, that we will create this new species that is intelligent and has personhood, but is unlike us. It's kind of filling the same role that aliens used to fill. Um, And I think that there's something to that. I think if you look at how neural networks work in practice, um, they kind of get to the right answer without any, anything that looks like understanding of the question. Um, John Searle's old Chinese room experiment turns out to have a lot to, uh, say about how AI actually works. Um, I don't love his conclusions about it. I think they're uninteresting conclusions, but that basic idea of what if something that can completely understand um, a problem to the extent of solving it, but has no understanding of it in terms of how a human mind would think about it. Uh, That's interesting. There's something there that I think is probably relevant. Um, And again, it gets back to the idea of in a world where we are feeling increasingly trapped and penned in, I am most interested in anything that is a radical break from that, anything that is fundamentally unlike this world. And yeah, I think AI is one of the lenses you can really move uh, toward that uh, through. Your your website makes fun of... uh... Joe Biden, not hard guy to make fun of. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Every Superman needs a superwoman. Liberal science fiction at the fall of democracy. Can liberalism, shall we say, Andrew Sullivan's notion of liberalism, the right of the individual, 18th, 19th century idea, can that survive in an age of transhumanism? Do 
Do progressives need to ditch the idea of liberalism? I think that, survive? I mean, can it survive? Yes. I think that probably, you know, if, if we assume, you know, the survival of the human race, which I think is probably a good bet, I don't think we're looking at extinction, um, then these ideas of individualism are going to come back. We're not done with the ideas of kind of heroic individualism. I think that we've gotten everything we're going to get out of them in the present moment. I think that right now it is a lot more productive to look at communities, to look at uh, larger systems of human organization, to look at the ways in which people are defined not as radical individuals, but as things that exist in larger networks and communities. I think that is the more productive way forward right now. And that doesn't mean that there was nothing, never anything there in individualism. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that we might dust off in individualism and find uh, use for later. But right now, I think we have corrected far too hard in favor of individualism, and there's not any more there. It's time to change gears and look at what we've been neglecting in favor of that. Very bracing, Elizabeth. Uh, Neera, um, you're the author of, of a lot of it, really interesting stuff. You, 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 you don't always take yourself as seriously, perhaps, as you deserve to be taken seriously. A near reaction, a basilisk, uh, well worth the read. Essays on and around the alt-right. Uh, you seem to understand these people better than most. Perhaps it's because of your interest in, in science fiction and your ability to grasp our, our current bizarre science fictional, medieval, Tolkienist moment. Uh, I'm not sure if I should congratulate you on that, but certainly it's an achievement. What else should people be le uh, reading, Elizabeth, these days? Uh, I suggested maybe not uh, Neil Stevenson. We had um, John Scalzi on the show recently. Uh, uh, talking about his new book, Kaiju Preservation Society. Are there still good science fictional writers out there? There are. Um, I think uh, I've, I've been looking actually at the kind of current crop of writers uh, up for the Hugo Award, and I think it's actually kind of a crap year for the Hugo Award. Uh, but there's one book in that bunch, uh, Shelley Parker Chan's She Who Became the Sun, uh, that absolutely blew me away. I literally read through the book three times in two or three months because each time I was like, no, I didn't get everything going on in that book. I need to go back in and I need to understand what it's doing. Um, it's doing, uh, that book is um, fantasy, not science fiction, but it's about the uh, rise of the Hongwu Emperor, the first emperor of the Ming Dynasty in the 14th century China, uh, who rose from being a uh, peasant uh, in a village affected by famine to a monk, to a military leader, to Chinese emperor. This, you know, rise from the absolute bottom of society to the top. And it reimagines him as a uh, trans man, as um, someone assigned female at birth who uh, kind of deliberately seizes the identity of her dead brother to try to claim his uh, supposed fate of greatness. Um, and it's an incredible meditation on transition, identity, and the nature of like what political power and greatness, historical greatness means. It blew me away. It did things that I have never seen done in science fiction. It is full of truly new ideas for the genre and I think is the only book that is a remotely sane choice for Hugo in this year. It won't win. Uh, something far more conservative and banal is going to win, but it's a stunning book that I recommend to anyone with any interest in science fiction and fantasy. 